0: Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, to First Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter 1. We're going to be this morning just looking at three verses, uh, verses 18, 18 through 20. But I'm going to actually read from verse 3 all the way to 20 just to help you see the flow because it's all very connected. Also, just uh, I'm going to give you a little quiz. Um, And if you know the answer, you'll get some reward, like a, I don't know, a pat on the back or something. Um, But if you can figure out why I chose 1 Samuel 15 as the scripture reading in relation to this morning's sermon, you can come tell me and and see if you're right, okay? So, because you might be thinking, how does 1 Samuel 15 remotely relate to uh, 1 Timothy? So, you can uh, wrestle through that as I preach, but I also want you to listen to the sermon as well. So, well, let, me, uh, let me read for us, beginning in verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, that's Paul speaking to Timothy, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liar, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, Appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning that we can gather as your people to worship you and to hear from you. And we ask, God, that we would worship you now through listening, that, Lord, you would give us minds to focus upon your truth, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive your word. Give us soft hearts, Lord, that would allow your word to penetrate into us and sanctify us and transform us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul has just finished articulating the calling that Jesus placed upon his own life, and specifically the gospel that had been entrusted to him. And now here in verses 18 to 20, he again speaks directly to young Timothy. He once again charges Timothy and instructs him. him. You see, the letter began, as we saw, with Paul instructing Timothy to confront those in the church who were teaching certain things pertaining to the law that were contrary to sound doctrine. And the result was controversies and quarrels. And now Paul once again exhorts or instructs Timothy in a similar fashion. And in some sense, what you have here is Paul entrusting to Timothy a part of his apostolic ministry. And because he's been entrusted with this responsibility, Paul wants Timothy to live and walk in a specific way, in a specific manner. There's a high calling upon his life. And therefore, Timothy must rise to the occasion. And fundamentally, what we see here, specifically in verse 18, is that he instructs Timothy to wage war. He instructs Timothy to prepare for battle. Look at verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. Here again, you you see the intimate relationship that, that Paul had with young Timothy, his child in the faith. So this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Now, there's a few things that we need to see here. The first thing is this, that Paul wants Timothy to wage the good warfare. The Christian life is a call to wage the good warfare. In fact, at the end of this letter, Paul exhorts Timothy in chapter 6, verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. In 2 Timothy 2.3, Paul exhorts Timothy, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul and the other New Testament writers saw the imagery of warfare as an excellent metaphor that captures what the Christian life is about. Now, of course the Christian's warfare is uniquely different than that of the world's. Ours is a spiritual warfare in which our primary battle is against the flesh, the world, and the devil. But there is something about this imagery that informs us on how and what the Christian life ought to look like. The Christian life is not a holiday at sea. Now, any good soldier may every so often take a holiday at sea, which can be a helpful thing. But a soldier knows that he's a soldier. And his calling requires hard work, courage, sacrifice, sweat, and tears. Also, any soldier knows that he has an enemy. And though there may be moments for rest, the fact is, a soldier in battle is always alert, knowing that his enemy can attack at any moment. And Paul wants Timothy to understand that what is before him is warfare. Warfare. There is a calling upon his life to wage the good warfare, and this will require Timothy to be courageous and wise. It will require him to do things and potentially say things that might not be natural to him. Like, for example, confronting these false teachers. It will require him to be strategic and thoughtful as he fulfills his calling to the people in Ephesus. Because we have lived in such comfort as Christians in Canada, I think we so easily lose sight of the fact that we are in a spiritual battle. We forget that we have a real enemy who desires to destroy us. We forget that there is a spiritual war going on between good and evil. That the kingdom of darkness is waging war against the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now we know that the kingdom of darkness cannot prevail against the kingdom of Jesus. But that doesn't mean that we can just lay down our guard. No, no, we must wage war as Christians, but in a manner completely different than the ways in which the world wages war. We do not overcome our enemies with hatred. We overcome them with love. We do not live by the sword, for Jesus said, those who live by the sword shall die by the sword. That's not the way of the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus overcame his enemies, how? By the cross. The cross. The Christian life is a call to wage the good warfare, and we'll, we'll see shortly what that means specifically in this passage. It's fundamentally about persevering in the faith. Now, the other thing we need to see here in verse 18 is what is what Paul does to help Timothy wage the good warfare. He encourages him. By reminding him of specific prophecies that were made about him. Look at verse 18 again. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. That by these prophecies you may fight the good fight. Now what were these prophecies? Well, we don't actually know. 1 Timothy 4.14 alludes to the fact that when Timothy had been ordained and had been set apart by the elders, he was given a gift that came through prophecy. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 4.14, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, we don't know entirely what this was, but what does seem obvious is, is that the Holy Spirit set Timothy apart for what he was being called to, and this was partly captured through these prophecies that were made about him. And this is partly why Paul entrusts Timothy with such responsibility. It's similar to what the Holy Spirit did with with Paul, where he set aside Paul for the task to be a missionary to the Gentiles. But I want you to notice what Paul is doing here paul knows that timothy is called to wage the good warfare and the question is what does timothy need what does he need in order to fulfill his calling and wage war and here paul believes that timothy needs to be reassured about his calling i think the niv translation captures this captures this with real clarity Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well. In other words, in order for Timothy to fight the good fight, he's going to need to be strengthened and encouraged. And Paul does this by recalling the fact that that there were prophecies made over his life that would reassure him in the task before him. Now, I really think this is significant, especially when we think about the Christian life and how we strive to live the Christian life. See, though we may have never been prophesied over like Timothy was, the fact is, in order for us to be faithful in waging the good warfare as Christians, we need the encouragement of other Christians. We need words of encouragement from brothers and sisters whom we deeply respect in the Lord. Timothy was being strengthened and encouraged by Paul, the one whom he looked up to, as he was being reminded about what was said about him. And this encouragement strengthened him to battle on. It captures for us how the Christian life can never be lived in isolation from other Christians. Like, I've never met a strong, faithful Christian who lived the Christian life without the encouragement and fellowship of other Christians. In fact, the one who thinks he does not need the encouragement and fellowship of other Christians is probably a prideful Christian. It also captures for us here the importance of encouragement in faithfully living the Christian life. You see, most of us probably don't think this, but your encouragement to another brother or sister could be the difference maker, the difference maker on a human level in seeing that brother or sister press on in the faith instead of shipwrecking their faith. You see, God has provided gracious means to help us cross the finish line. And one of those gracious means is the encouragement of one's brothers and sisters in the Lord. Hebrews three twelve to 13 speaks to this, where the writer of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. And then he says this, but exhort or encourage one another every day as long as it is called today, why? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you see the logic? The writer of Hebrews is arguing arguing that there is a direct correlation between encouragement and seeing that no one be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Encouragement is one of the instruments that God uses to help us wage wage the good warfare. And therefore, we ought to encourage one another. We ought to speak words of life into each other's lives because you never know how God might use your words to keep a brother or sister fighting the good fight. I can't tell you the number of times in which Someone's encouragement was the very thing I needed for that moment in my life. I think I've told you this story. I can't remember anymore what stories I tell you. Um, but um, when I was a younger, in my early 20s, I was pretty pretty done, spent with a lot of different things. And I thought I was going into pastoral ministry, but it, it just wasn't working out. I was burnt out. Um, exhausted and and my ministry experience that i had led me to feel like if this is what ministry was i'm not called to do this and so i went away to my uncle and aunt's cottage my uncle's like my uncle and aunt are like uh, second parents to me and i just went there to rest and my uncle came up and we got to spend some time together and i was sharing with him about my doubts about what i was supposed to do with my life how i was supposed to serve the lord i wasn't having a faith crisis in the sense that I didn't know if I believed anymore. That wasn't it at all. I believed. I wasn't sure how I was supposed to serve Jesus because I thought I was supposed to be a pastor, and I felt like I wasn't at that moment in time. And I remember he said to me in that moment, he said, Peter, I don't know a lot of things, but there's one thing I do know, and that is this. You're called to preach God's word. And I can't tell you, I don't think it was a prophecy or anything like that, but I can't tell you how... Impactful that moment was in my life. That somehow the Holy Spirit took the words of my uncle, who, I'm, who I respected so much, and took those words and instilled those words in my life. And I still look back on those words when there are days where I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. Because <laughs> I believe the Lord has called me to do that. But it was the words of someone I respected that in that very moment uplifted me out of my darkness. And reminding me what it meant to serve the Lord in the capacity the Lord has called me. So Paul encourages Timothy to wage the good fight by reminding him of the prophecies that were made about him. Now there's one other thing we need to see here in Paul encouraging Timothy to fight on. In this specific passage, we need to think about what was the good warfare that Timothy was called to wage. And verse 19 is the clue. You wage the good warfare by holding faith and a good conscience. To wage the good warfare is to hold on the hold on to the faith and a good conscience. Now when Paul says here that Timothy must hold on to the faith, he use, he's using that word faith in an objective sense. He's speaking about the faith that is, What has come to be defined as Christianity? What has come to be defined as sound doctrine? The apostolic faith pertaining to who God is and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul's saying that the way you wage the good warfare, Timothy, is by holding on to this faith, persevering in the faith. That is, keep believing in the faith, keep trusting in the truths of our faith. Now, we know that we cannot, in our own strength, do that. We need the Holy Spirit. Paul understands that. But there is an exhortation here to hold on to that which we have obtained. As Gerald Bray states, faith is obviously essential because without clear convictions and a deep trust in God, no resistance to the forces of evil is possible. This is why it's so important to grow in your knowledge of the faith. It's important that you grow in your knowledge of who God is, of what the gospel is, of what salvation is, of what God requires of us morally. Without a deep knowledge and belief in these truths, it will almost be impossible to wage the good warfare. But Paul also speaks here of a good conscience, a good conscience. You wage the good fight by holding on to the faith, but also having a good conscience. Now this is the second time in chapter 1 where Paul speaks to both of these ideas. In verse 3 he says to Timothy, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. A good conscience according to Bray is is one that has received the faith taught by Christ and put it into practice. By contrast, a bad conscience is one that has heard the word but failed to apply it. In other words, what Paul is simply getting at is this, is that both right belief and right practice, right living, is essential to waging the good warfare. As John Stott says, belief and behavior, conviction and conscience, the intellectual and the moral, are closely linked. You will not be able to wage the good warfare if you do not hold to the faith nor have a good conscience. And so Paul instructs Timothy here to wage war, to prepare for battle. And he does this by encouraging him, but also calling him to hold on to the faith and a good conscience. And after he tells him this, he then provides a warning of what happens when your conscience becomes corrupted. He gives a warning. Look at verse 19 again. By rejecting this, what's the this? Well, the faith, but also really, I think, the good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck their faith. Now that word reject is very strong in the Greek. It's the idea to, to thrust away. It implies a deliberate rejection. And so Paul says that some people have shipwrecked their faith because they have rejected deliberately rejected the faith, but particularly a good conscience. Now, it's really important we see this. See, quite often, we tend to think that someone shipwrecks the faith, or shipwrecks their faith, or abandons the faith because of some intellectual reason. They've come across some idea that has led them to doubt the truthfulness of Christianity's claims. But the emphasis of the scriptures is never the intellect. The emphasis is always the conscience and one's moral conduct. You see, to this day, I have never met a once professing Christian who shipwrecked their faith fundamentally because of some intellectual problem. Sometimes it's masqueraded as that, but it's always fundamentally a conscience or ethical dilemma. They've experienced or participated in something sinful and their hearts begin to cling to that sin and the pleasure it brings and then they begin to doubt the faith. I've seen this time and time again. I saw it with my best friend in high school. He painted it as an intellectual problem, but the fact was, he started to engage with a certain crowd and experience certain pleasures, and he walked away from the Lord. I can't remember if I've told this story, but I know of a youth pastor who went to visit some of his students who had graduated and were now in university. And he sat down with a few of his students over coffee and caught up with them. And he asked them how they were doing spiritually in regards to their walk with the Lord. And one of the students said something like, to be honest, I don't really know if I believe those things anymore. I've been taking some courses and realizing that Christianity isn't as reliable as I thought. And instead of engaging the student on the intellectual level, the youth pastor immediately went to the ethical and responded with, so who are you sleeping with? At which the student responded in shock, how did you know that I was sleeping with someone? And the youth pastor said, because doubt almost always is the result of playing with sin. see, Calvin, in light of this passage, said this about the importance of a good conscience. This passage ought to be carefully observed. We know that the treasure of sound doctrine is invaluable. And therefore, there is nothing that we ought to dread more than to have it taken from us. But Paul here informs us that there is only one way of keeping it safe. And that is to secure it by the locks and bars of a good conscience. This is why a little later on, Calvin says, a bad conscience is the mother of all heresy. A bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. A bad conscience will produce all kinds of heresies that undermine the faith. And this is what we see in this passage. Some rejected a good conscience and therefore they shipwrecked their faith. See, this is why I think people who are engaging in certain sins will will often take the Bible and attempt to interpret it in such a way that it gives approval to such behavior. And we're all capable of this. In fact, we're all prone to this. And this is why Paul emphasizes the importance of a good conscience in waging the good warfare. Jeremy Taylor, I think, Uh, captures so powerfully how sin works and how our consciences are destroyed when he describes the progress of sin in a man. This is what he says. First, that is, first it, sin, startles him. Then it becomes pleasing. Then easy. Then delightful. Then frequent. Then habitual. Then confirmed. Then the man is, is Im, sorry, impenitent, then obstinate, then resolves to never repent, and then he is damned. You see, if we don't protect our consciences, if we're not concerned about how we live, then we too will shipwreck our faith. Now, now you, you may say, oh Peter, don't, don't you believe once saved, always saved? Don't you believe that those who are truly born again are secured until eternal life? Yes, I do. But understand this. If you profess faith in Jesus Christ, but have a conscience that is corrupt, it is probably an indication that you have never experienced saving faith. And if you are fooling around with sin and you are destroying your conscience. Do not think that because one time you profess faith in Jesus, you're good. You are potentially destroying whatever was there in your soul. And Paul here warns Timothy, and he warns us against such a thing. Wage war. Hold fast to the faith. And devote yourself to having a good conscience. Now there is one final thing we see in this passage, and it's quite alarming and shocking. We see Paul's apostolic discipline of two men who had shipwrecked their faith. See, Paul tells Timothy that some have made shipwreck their faith, and then in verse 20, he provides two examples of what he means, among whom are Hymenius and Alexander. Now, we're not totally sure who these men were. Uh, in 2 Timothy 2, 16 to 18, there's, a, there's another reference to Hymenius, and most likely it's the same man. And Paul refers to him as a, as a man who is leading people into more and more ungodliness. He swore from the truth, proclaiming that the resurrection of the dead has already occurred. And then there's also a reference to Alexander mentioned in chapter, uh, 2 Timothy four fourteen, where Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Now, whether that's the same Alexander, we're not sure, um, because Alexander was a, a very common name, but most likely this is the same Hymenius. Now, we're not told exactly what they did, except that they had shipwrecked their faith, and Paul does state that they had committed blasphemy. But we don't know the specifics of what that meant in the specific situation. Now, most likely, these men were some of the individuals who had been misusing the law and encouraging vain discussion that led to quarrels and controversies. And Paul holds these two men as examples to not follow. This is what happens when you don't hold to the faith and don't have a good conscience. And Paul wants Timothy to not become like them, but rather to fight the good fight. But notice what he said he did with these men. Verse 20. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Interesting. This is Paul's apostolic discipline, and by extension, the discipline of the church. But what does Paul actually mean by this? This this handing over to Satan. Well, I think this is another way of referring to excommunication. Removing someone from the church because of unrepentant sin, specifically here, that of blasphemy. I think 1 Corinthians 5 is is helpful for us here because Paul uses similar language there as he does here. And it's in reference to what the church should do in regards to the man who is engaging in sexual immorality and is unrepentant. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 for a second 1st Corinthians chapter 5 verses 1 to 5 listen to what Paul says here it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife I want you to think about that situation. This is the church of Jesus Christ. And there is sin going on in the church that not even the pagans tolerate in culture. And Paul says, you're tolerating this. This son has his father's wife. And verse 2, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? And look at what he says. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. If the pagans don't tolerate this, why are we tolerating it? Let this man be removed from among you. That is, remove him from the church. Verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan For the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, here's what I think Paul is saying To be removed from the church, excommunicated for unrepented sin, is precisely a handing over to Satan. And here's why there are two domains in this world there is the domain of darkness. And the kingdom of light. And when one is removed from the kingdom of light, the church, they are automatically placed in the domain of darkness where Satan rules and reigns. That person is no longer under the protection and the care of the church of Jesus Christ. John Stott captures this well. Since the church is the dwelling place of God, it follows that to be ejected from it is to be sent back into the world, the habitat of Satan. See, sometimes this has to happen to preserve the witness of the church and to protect the spiritual well-being of the sheep. You see, if the church doesn't address unrepentant sin in its own midst. How in the world can the church call the world to repentance? Now I understand that many churches practice this wrongly and there have been many abuses of it. But it doesn't change the truth that we are called to address unrepentant sin in the life of the church. But notice here the reason for why Paul handed them over to Satan. Was it to get revenge? No. Was it to spite them and destroy them, to shame them? No. It was with the goal of restoration in mind. Look at what he says. Whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme, that they may learn not to sin. They were excommunicated, removed from the church, so that in a sense, they would wake up from their foolishness and learn from their errors and be restored. As John Stott says, radical though this punishment is, it is not permanent or irreversible. Its purpose is remedial, in the hope that through the discipline, the offenders may be taught not to blaspheme. You know what this tells me? is that sometimes love doesn't look remotely like what our culture tells us is love. Sometimes to truly love someone means you have to be willing to cause them a little pain. Because sometimes people have to learn the hard way. I've had to learn the hard way. I mean, let's just use the example of parenting. Sometimes parents, in their wisdom, will allow their children to experience the ramifications of some of their foolish choices in order that they would be restored and learn from their errors. Sometimes a parent has to allow pain, even inflict pain, for the over well-being of their child. Sometimes a parent has to allow a child to taste the consequences. In fact, I would argue that if, as a parent, you never inflict pain upon your children, you're most likely a negligent parent. And sometimes in the church, the church must inflict a level of pain in order to see someone living in disobedience restored to right fellowship with God and the church. I mean, think about it this way. If you're a parent and you have a, a teenager, let's say he's 17 or 18 years old, basically he's a man, okay? And he has no regard for your authority. And he's living an absolutely immoral lifestyle. He brings girls home without, without your permission. He does things with them and he doesn't care what you say. He does drugs in the house. He curses you out and the list goes on. He takes your car without your permission. He is utterly immoral. A lot of people today would say the loving thing to do is just tolerate his rebellion. Put up with it. And maybe for a season that is true. But sometimes the loving thing to do is to say to that 17-year-old... If you don't follow my authority and the rules of my home, go find another place to live. And here's why. So long as you're tolerating his rebellion, you're unconsciously telling him that he can have all the benefits that you bring to the table regardless of how he behaves. You're not actually helping him. You're actually giving him more reason to keep behaving the way he is because he doesn't believe there are any consequences for his behavior. And sometimes to love someone is to make the hardest decision of your life. And sometimes within the church, we have to make a painful decision to remove someone from the church so that Lord willing they might feel the full consequences of their choices and run back and be restored. And when they come back, when that 17-year-old son comes knocking on that door, weeping, realizing how much he needs his mom, we embrace him just as the father embraced his prodigal son. See, I think Martin Luther captures this truth so powerfully when he says, Our chastisement ought to be a medicine, for the kingdom of Christ is one of mercy. It does not chastise to destruction, but to salvation. It does not kill. It holds no sword except a spiritual one. It keeps a man under Satan, yet it does not deliver him farther than to recover him from the snares of Satan. It wants to have him chastised in such a way that he returns. Remember this. Proverbs 27:6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Or, faithful are the wounds of a church, profuse are the kisses of the world. And so I pray that the Holy Spirit. would help each of us to fight this good fight by holding fast to the faith and being devoted to having a good conscience. And may we be all the more eager to encourage one another in this battle so that together we may reach the finish line hand in hand so that together we never have to hand anyone over to Satan. Let's pray. Father, we know that every command in your scripture is from you and that we are called to live according to it. But we also know that the scriptures make clear that in our own strength and ability, we cannot fulfill a single command. And that is why we need grace. That is why we need your Holy Spirit. And so we ask, Lord, this morning, that with the help of your spirit, you would help us to wage the good warfare and you would help us to hold on to a good conscience. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that is playing around with sin, destroying and corrupting their conscience, that this very morning they would repent and turn from it and begin to fight that battle. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.